LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, how the female body drove 200 million years of human evolution. I think it's fair to say that as a species, we are narcissists. We're impressed by ourselves. We relish the story of human evolution, much as a sentimental person loves to share pictures from their childhood. Wasn't I cute? Look at this one. This might help explain why Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens, which tells the scientific story of our origin with the simplicity of, say, the Bible, is among the best-selling books in history. We had the pleasure of having Yuval as a guest on the show, and I asked him about this nostalgia we have for our collective childhood. I asked if he felt it too, if part of him longed for the ancient world. He told me, I think in a way, almost all of us have this longing. Something inside us remembers the Stone Age and sometimes wants to go back there. I feel this, a desire to know what it felt like to live immersed in the environment in which all of our instincts and senses evolved. And so I've explored our ancient past on this show with other guests like David Wengro, whose book, The Dawn of Everything, opened my eyes to the incredible breadth of human social structures. With Christopher Ryan, who connected all of our modern troubles to our departure from our ancestral state in Civilized to Death. And with Edward Slingerland, who talked about the first human keg party and the possibility that the desire to drink together drove the advent of farming. These guests, as you may have noticed, are all men. Unfortunately, a preponderance of the tellers of the human story have been. As a result, the protagonists of their tales are mostly dudes, too. Cro-Magnon Bob the Builders swinging ancient hammers. But an exciting new book came out recently, which sets out to change all this. It's called Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution by Kat Bohannon. Kat, who has a PhD from Columbia in the evolution of narrative and cognition, interesting combination, makes the long overdue case that since the dawn of mammals, animals with memories, ancestral women have played an absolutely critical role in the shaping of the human story. From early tool development to language to midwifery and birth control, women were, as it should be, at the center of the story. And this journey has lots to tell us about our current condition, the bodies we have today, and the complexity of our relationships. Indeed, the story of our evolution is written on our bodies, Kat tells us. So we can look down and around and engage in one of our favorite activities, admiring the scrapbook of our miraculously beautiful species, if we don't say so ourselves. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Thank you.
Kat Bohannon, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thanks for having me. Fun to be here. You have written a wildly ambitious, sprawling tome of a book, an opus. You could knock out a burglar with this book. <laughs> I think it took you 10 years to write it. Did. What was your ambition with this book? What, what, what did you set out to achieve? The first and most obvious moral imperative of the book is that the female body throughout model mammals, including human models, has just been radically understudied, just wildly so. And because of that, that means that there are these huge gaps in our actual story. Because, of course, what we're doing inevitably in the lab, especially when we're doing evolutionary stuff, but honestly, not only, also in our clinical trials, in a way, we're building better stories about ourselves. Yeah, we're, we're building understandings and frameworks for how we fit into our world and how we fit into these weird-ass mammalian bodies, too. And so when we've left out half of so many of these sex species, that means there's a lot of work to do to fill in some of those gaps. Like, okay, we've got this story about guys. What about the female? How does that change this story? You open the book in a movie theater in New York in 2012. Do you want to tell us what you saw in that theater and what it has to do with the odd exclusion of the female body from scientific study? So here I am in a theater, and I'm watching this prequel to Alien. You know that you're not there to see nice things happen to people. So that means that when I saw the main character shamble into a room with a med pod, this is like a surgery pod, like a futuristic, like this is where you get your doctoring done, right? Uh, it turned out she was impregnated by a vicious alien squid, as you do, and you're running with that. And so she says to the med pod, I need a cesarean. Error. This med pod is calibrated for male patients only. Please seek medical assistance elsewhere. <sighs> And I hear this woman in the row behind me at the theater say, shit, who does that? And in my head, I'm like, yeah, actually, who does that? Who sends a multi-trillion dollar expedition into space and doesn't make sure the equipment works on women? But I just happen to know because of my own research and my own side interests in the sciences that, well, actually, that's us. Yeah, that's just us. That's just all mm -hmm, of us. In fact, mm -hmm. right now, that is, in fact, the condition of the medical sciences. Because it turns out that in a lot of human clinical trials, but particularly from the 70s through the mid-90s, but let's be honest, still pretty much now, I have friends who work in pharma, still pretty much now, females are radically under-enrolled. In fact, they were forbidden to be enrolled for a long time and only recently now required to be enrolled. Here's what I mean by enrolled for listeners who don't know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So a subject pool is who you study. And you're supposed to get a representative subject pool when you test things like a new drug. But because we didn't want to screw up unborn babies, there were rules about whether or not you could include uh, women, people with a uterus, who could become pregnant. But unfortunately, what that meant, because being of reproductive age is, say, 11 or so until... 50-something. Yeah, that's most of our lives. That meant we just simply weren't there. The data on females simply wasn't there. And that meant for a very long time, many of the drugs coming onto the market, FDA approved perfectly checking all the boxes, all the rules done, mm -hmm. had not been studied on females at all. All, you know, like things like uh, Ambien. This is Zolpidem. This is a common sleep aid, okay? It turns out as a female patient, I should have taken mm, half the dose of a same size, same mass male 
patient. And we only recently adjusted this dosage guideline after finding out that a lot of female patients were getting in um, car crashes in the mornings after they'd taken, right? At that point, the drug had been on the market for over 20 years. Wow. So, you know. (laughs) Astonishing. That's just a thing. Like, maybe that doesn't matter for your Tylenol, but that's the thing about not knowing. Let's say even as much as 80% of the drugs you take, turns out it doesn't matter if you have a functional SRY gene on your on your Y chromosome, okay, if you are a biologically a male, okay? Well, if the other 20% is associated with things like excess deaths, maybe it's good to know that. So women have been excluded from, from scientific studies. They've also been excluded from the story of how our species evolved. There's a woman-shaped hole in the history of our species. Mm-hmm. Your book is really uh, an exercise in filling that hole. Is that is that a fair statement? I think that is. I mean, like anyone who has ever done scientific research, you know, my hope, of course, is that, you know, this goes out and this is a wonderful starter package and then lots of mm-hmm. smart people do more stuff and make yeah. it even better and maybe debate about it and then it stays in the conversation and then the science gets better. Like, a good goal is to have like half of the book proven wrong in the next decade. Awesome. That means that the experiments were happening. But also that um, as soon as you start asking, yes, but what about the female? Mm-hmm. The story actually can change quite a bit. The story of agriculture, the story of mm-hmm. tool use, the story yeah. of bipedalism, just really a lot of the hominin line starts to look a bit different once you remember that half of us had a uterus. It's it's amazing for me just reading the book, and I've read quite a few books about human evolution, just this move of changing the pronoun, describing <laughs> each step in the evolution of humans from the vantage point of the female body is a really powerful reframing. Is how we think about the development of tools, the development of language, the evolution of various forms of birth control, and, and you tell that story in a way I've never heard it told. Mm. Arguably, Darwin would approve of this framing of the story. Because he observed that the female is usually doing the mate selection that drives the evolutionary process, not to mention a majority of the child rearing, which makes possible the actual survival of the fittest. Yes, these are the bodies that make the bodies that make the bodies, y'all. Just saying. Of course, it was like, as you know, that was super controversial at the time, let's say, that there were these actual secret women reading groups of Darwin that would have to read it in private because there were like special editions of The Descent of Man that were like feminized so it wouldn't Mm. be too challenging to their their (laughs) sentiment. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so like there there were these like groups of women privately reading the original editions of Darwin that hadn't been softened for them. That was like a weirdly feminist space at the time. Interesting. Well, you know, this broader topic of of human evolution, I think is very broadly interesting. I mean, you witness, you know, some 30 million and counting, uh, you know, books sold by Harari and, 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 and others. And I think part of what drives this is that we homo sapiens are very happy with ourselves. You, you point out at one point that the human brain is deeply impressed by and enamored with the human brain. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and how yeah, it came yeah, to yeah. be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a very self-impressed organ. I know. I know. The gallbladder's like nothing, nothing. Guys, I do this all day long. <laughs> Just the brain then. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But, but, but what I love is that when you dig into the story of our journey, which starts in your book earlier than I've ever heard it told, mm. it's really deeply humbling. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> it was a very long journey to the top of the food chain for us. Oh, yeah. And the story begins over 200 million years ago with yeah. the first lactating animal, the first mm -hmm. mammal, a kind of cross, you say, between a weasel and a mouse who you call Morgie. Can you tell us about Morgie? Morgie is uh, an adorable little weasel rat. Uh, scurrying literally under the feet of dinosaurs. It's assumed that she was burrowing. A lot of uh, ancient mammals probably were filling those tiny insectivore niches that somehow uh, not all of the dinosaurs and other uh, creatures at the time had filled. So there she is, and she's eating her beetles, and she's living her life, and she still has a sprawling pelvis uh, because we weren't quite upright yet. So she kind of drags her belly along the ground a little bit like a lizard would do, if you can picture a lizard with the limbs out to the side. But Furry, oh. furry little oh. bitch. There she oh. is. And she, however, of course, would go back into her burrow at dawn because the assumption was that many of these creatures were nocturnal and nurse her pups who had still hatched from eggs because, of course, all early mm. mammals were still laying eggs. The placenta and that general uterine shift happens later. And they were they were getting their milk off of mama's tummy because uh, much like the duckbill platypus today, they had no nipples. They were just licking that stuff off a furry belly. And, and that was where my boobs come from. And this is relatively recent knowledge, I think, that mammals yeah. coexisted with dinosaurs, emerged you know, as early as 200 million years ago. So this is our great-great-grandmother, Morgie, skittering around between the thundering footfalls of dinosaurs, yep, often yep. no doubt eaten by them, oh, yeah. you know, snapping up sometimes insects. Sometimes stepped on. Yeah. <laughs> undoubtedly, undoubtedly sometimes stepped on. Um, mm -hmm. and it's also, I think, a relatively recent, less recent, but still somewhat recent discovery that dinosaurs never went fully extinct. They survived yep. as birds. Oh, so yes, yes, yes. Modern birds who, who pick at our picnic lunches uh, and, and, and who we now eat by the, by the megaton are dinosaurs, so the, the tables have turned. But continuing the story, we survived the dinosaurs. Mm. We survived the asteroid apocalypse that took out most of the dinosaurs. Yep, yep. Uh, and we evolved into a tree-dwelling monkey squirrel weasel, as you, oh, yeah. as you describe it. That now we're now. This is about 4.4 million years ago uh, that we came down from the trees and started yes. to walk on two feet. Why did we leave the safety of the trees, Cat? Was that a good idea? I'm sure some folks were saying, you people are crazy. Get back up here. Well, I mean, cetaceans were pretty convinced that it was a terrible idea and went rightly back into the oceans and lost their hind legs. And uh, now we have whales. So we came down from the safety of the trees. Yes, we did. We stand up on our two legs. And this is Artipithecus ramidus, uh, recently discovered one of the most amazing full fossils out there. We know a hell of a lot about her. The assumption is she was female, and she was a fully bipedal creature. And then even as we continue, right, I think it was some 2.8 million years ago, Homo habilis begins to use tools. And you say there's some evidence that females were actually more proactive uh, with tools. Is that, is that the argument? So when I was doing some research for the book, I went out to Nairobi and met with a few different primatologists out there. And one primatologist told me, well, she was like, well, females are often the avid tool users and they're mm. often very clever. 
because we have to be. The idea is that if you are both the primary caretaker of an offspring through the early years of life, and in chimpanzees and many other great apes, the females really, really are. There's some alloparenting. That means like it takes a village shared care, but nothing like humans. It's primarily the mom that's protecting that infant and then that juvenile that stays with her all the damn time, and then her own smaller, slightly more vulnerable body. Right. So in other words... If you need to put some distance between yourself and uh, something you're trying to kill for its meat, it behooves the female that much more. Well, so then we get to the dawn of Homo erectus 1.8 million years ago, and finally our our beloved Homo sapiens some 300,000 years ago. Now our brains are getting much larger. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And this, of course, is exciting for us. We love the story. There, so there are many brains. competing theories about how and why, what drove this extraordinary kind of expansion of mm-hmm. the Homo sapien, Homo erectus, and the Homo sapien brains. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how do you think about it? The one I found most convincing, which is very much a topic of debate in the field, is the variability selection, um, which is to say climate change. You see these rapid periods of big peaks and troughs in climate change. And they seem to be tied to encephalization in the hominin line. And that's really interesting because what a brain really is, it is a problem-solving supercomputer that basically runs on sugar. And so what it's really, really good for is adaptability. It's really, really good for making do when so much has changed that your own behavioral patterns shift so much that it's not going to work anymore the way you were doing a thing. And then by the time we migrate out of Africa, those of us who did, remember not everyone did, but those of us who did, including Erectus, you know, um, you have this incredible behavioral adaptability. But the thing that we don't often talk about, which I do in my book, is that it wasn't such a simple thing to migrate. It wasn't just that we were so clever and then we migrated because our reproductive system is terrible. And so to survive in new environments, we actually needed to manipulate our reproductive patterns, which required all of that problem solving and behavioral shift Mm. and sometimes even pharmacology to endure. So you see this kind of reproductive uh, family planning as part of that story. Language, of course, is a key part of the story. How do you think about the emergence of language and what drove it? and the female role in that process. For me, it was interesting because, again, in each chapter, I had that thought experiment. What about the female, right? So it's not that females drove the evolution of language entirely. Like that's, that's, some people have misinterpreted that chapter that I'm trying to make that claim. It's not that. It's more like if the thought experiment is, yes, but what about females? What's going on there? How is the female vocal tract different? What are its advantages and disadvantages? And what do we know about what's actually useful and significant and critical about human language? And something that's often neglected, not in the psychological sciences, of course, but maybe in our evolutionary stories, is human childhood. Because, of course, none of us are born with a gene that tells us how to say stuff. We're born with brains that are hungry for language, ready to build this stuff however the hell they can. But it takes actually a long time to even be able to parse 
what a word is. Remember that this is a string of sound for a very long time for a newborn going in through early, you know, like it's like a kind of World War II code breaking just to figure out where the hell these things stop and start in a string. That's a key moment. And the thing that we often forget about human childhood is that it's deeply tied to language development, that actually those first two to three years are absolutely goddamn critical for language development. That's where this language engine gets going. And during that time, for the most of human history, like 300,000 years, the breastfeeding during that time, which is to say, it's not the case that human infants don't have a language instinct. It's just that their primary communicative dyad, their primary communication pairing is happening with their primary caretaker. And throughout the majority of human history, that's going to be who you're breastfeeding from. It's probably going to be the person who gave birth to you. It's not that the mother gives the child language, but to ignore her role in human history is really weird. I did some digging into this, this, the arguments for the survival advantage of the emergence of language for the purpose of gossip, which is Mm -hmm. uh, we think of gossip as as having a negative connotation today and as of being this sort of trivial thing. But if one thinks of it more broadly as the exchange of information about other homo sapiens and, and, and and the rules according to which we, we live and collaborate, it's, it's, it's absolutely critical, particularly if one imagines an ancestral environment within which there are other homo sapiens who might want to kill you. You know, mm-hmm. you, 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 have, you have to sort of navigate understanding the motivations and the dynamics between other people in your tribe and other tribes is absolutely critical. Yeah, I think gossip is really, really cool and interesting. I mean, not like personally, like as a person, I try not to be right. a jerk, but like yeah, fundamental yeah, yeah, to yeah, how yeah. we communicate with each other. Yeah, yeah. I think anthropologist Robin Dunbar is mm-hmm. best known for arguing that we evolve speech in order to gossip. Then when you think, and th- th- this potentially gets me into dangerous territory, but I think it's I think it's defensible. If we remember that gossip is not a negative connotation, but it's actually a form of intelligence, right? It's a mm-hmm. form of intelligence gathering mm-hmm. that you look at data around the relative time that men and women spend in different kinds of communication. And I think the, the last big study that I saw in 2019 from the University of California, Riverside, concluded that that women do, in fact, gossip more than men. But in neutral information sharing modes, when it comes to negative gossip between the sexes, it's equal. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm throwing out that's to you really an, another possible argument that sort of dovetails nicely with your larger argument, which is that there's potentially an argument that, that as we think about division of labor and a lot of this labor shared between the sexes, that, that women may have done more of this kind of information sharing. And if that is what drove the growth of the brain and language development more so than any other form of communication. It's, 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 a, it's an interesting piece of the story. That is really interesting. I mean, I can see why you'd uh, wave the red flag that clearly is planted in the idea. Uh, yeah. You yes, know, yeah, yes. yeah. And no, and I am acknowledging that you've waved it, and we all know you've waved it now, and we can move on from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see that. I can see why it's absolutely true that associating femaleness with gossip is some is some bullshit. But I mean, if you put gossip in the frame of uh, social information sharing, I think that's really really interesting. In this case, I think I would just want to see what happens with some of the. Rep- Replication efforts in places like Nairobi that are working with populations that are not white college kids at UC Riverside. You know, there's always the trouble with claims of ubiquity when inevitably yeah, you're using yeah. a local behavioral group that is very specific. So my blanket statement would be, that sounds real cool. 
Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so we're going to put a <laughs> yeah. pin in that. It's sort of yeah. an interesting thing that I'm sure people will explore further. So another big factor in our evolution was this increasingly challenging business of birthing children and Oof. keeping them alive as, as we got larger and larger skulls and brains, right? Mm -hmm. And you have called human babies blood-sucking demon fetuses. Oh, yeah. I love my kids, but that's not inaccurate. <laughs> Why, Kat, would you describe our adorable little human babies as blood-sucking oh. demon fetuses or feti? And why is this important to the bigger story of the evolution of humans and, and of our gender roles? You know, I think a blood-sucking demon fetus could be cute. Just depends how you picture it in your head. You know, it could be horrific and cute at the same time, which is what babies are. It's fine. There are many reasons why horror movies show a kid doing something creepy, because kids are creepy, thank you very much. Anyway, um, no, in this case, actually, I call them a blood-sucking demon fetus precisely because the human placenta is deeply invasive. What I mean by that mm. is not simply the metaphor of, like, get the hell out of me, which many pregnant people do feel. No, it's actually that literally it's a medical term that the more invasive placentas penetrate all the way down into the maternal bloodstream. The weird thing about the human placenta, okay, for your listeners, if you don't know what the hell that is, fair, it is basically the docking station. You've probably heard of the umbilical cord. So the placenta is the thing the umbilical cord docks into, okay? And mm -hmm. the thing about the human placenta and placentas like it being as deeply invasive as they are is that they are automatically... Um, Problematic is probably a word that's overused these days, but in this case, I think it's accurate, right? Because it's automatically going to have knock-on effects in the maternal immune system because it's naturally evolved to down-regulate the maternal immune system, which otherwise would attack, and rightly so, uh, any invader that's going mm, in that no. deep in a uterus, right? And so what you actually have in a human pregnancy is a kind of trench warfare, and you don't – it's a detente that – last roughly nine months. You don't want either side to win or lose too much because that's actually where most of your birth complications come from. And meanwhile, the actual birthing process, right, is, oh, yeah. is, is traumatic and not easy to survive. I think it is useful to remember that just because something is normal doesn't mean it's fine, okay? Right. <laughs> it is right. normal for yeah. birth to be terrible, and so we yeah. call the extra terrible stuff complications, okay? Yeah. And that's just a thing that we do maybe to reassure ourselves. But actually, when you look out at the wider scope, because we are the animals we are, if you look at other primates, our pregnancies and births and postpartum recoveries are longer and harder and more prone to dangerous and crippling and murdery complications than they are for most other primates. And the reason I said so much about the placenta is that for a long time, we talked about what's called the obstetric dilemma. And we said, that's why it's terrible, okay? That when we evolved to walk upright, our pelvic bones shift and it closed some of that aperture, closed some of that opening at the bottom that is the birth canal, right? So now we're trying to squeeze a watermelon-sized thing during labor out a lemon-sized hole. And if you've met fruit, this is clearly a problem. So that's what's called the obstetric <laughs> dilemma. And then that's part of why, and I'm not the first to do it, uh, you know, people think even as early as Lucy, the Australopithecine, 3.2 yeah. million years ago, she probably had a midwife to help her mm, go through this terrible thing. But the yeah. reason I talked about the placenta so much is because that's the side of the story we don't often talk about in paleo circles. 
mm-hmm. because it's soft tissue. It doesn't it doesn't stick around in the fossil record, but also because we've only recently learned so much about the placenta. That if you have a thing that is detaching from the uterine wall that is so deeply wound into the maternal blood structure of the tissue, yeah? That's a lot of tearing. That's a lot of literal tearing of blood vessels. That means that, well, obviously hemorrhage is one of the main ways that pregnant people die. But combine that then with the obstetric dilemma and imagine what labor really is. Okay, the average chimp mom, her labor, top to bottom, contractions to baby, seems to be roughly half an hour. And the average first-time human mom is 12 to 16 hours. So a lot of that is opening the cervix and loosening, you know, that that terribly lemon-sized opening. But uh, some of it is also the process of timing the detaching of that invasive placenta, which is tearing stuff and then contracting to clot it up and what have you, which is to say that's a lot of time for things to go wrong, dude. All of a sudden, the egg strategy is not looking that bad. <laughs> but that's I guess, what I'm saying. I guess with these that's with these big I'm brains, we, we 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 need some complicated procedures. Terrible idea. Can we please go back to eggs? Yeah. Right. Exactly. But but the other thing that you and I know as parents is that the actual rearing of these helpless, demanding children is also costly. Birthing is costly. Oh, yeah. Parenting is costly. Mm-hmm. And so this is not only part of the great adventure of being a homo sapien, but mm-hmm. it's also, I think, part of what drove the story of our evolution. And you yes. make the case that that family planning through a combination of what you call gynecology, which is effectively um, birth control and, uh, and conventional, sometimes using potentially plants as medicines, which is very mm-hmm. interesting, mm-hmm. and cultural norms mm-hmm. uh, became very important to, to basically we needed to find ways to control, to some degree, the the timing of our pregnancies and production of offspring. And, mm-hmm. and, and so how did this drive our, our evolution and our journey and the way that we relate? Everything that we do to get our hands on the levers of reproduction, behaviorally, some of that is shared medical knowledge and practices, and some of that is literal midwifery, where we help the thing get out, is helping us overcome our most basic problem. In biology, in evolutionary biology particularly, this is what's called a hard problem. If you are bad at making babies, and the human species actually is, it turns out, we didn't think we were, but no, 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 we suck at this, right? That is about as hard stop as you can get for a species. So for us, we didn't wait for our uterus to change and to have a bigger opening or to solve that somehow. We invented gynecology. We found behavioral workarounds for our biggest problem, which I argue is why we're not extinct, which has to do with our mating strategies, but also deeply has to do with the evolution of sexism. So what I call sexism in the book is fundamentally about these sex rules that nearly Mm. every human culture creates, which basically have to do with access and control around female bodies. Where does she get to go? When does she get to go there? Who does she get to be with? How much of her body gets to be seen in these contexts? Who gets to touch her? My God. And what kind of touching is okay? And all of these kinds of things, which seem like small, local, sexist rules, also inevitably are influencing, well, when she has actual sex, who she actually Mm -hmm. pair bonds Mm -hmm. with, where and when the actual baby making 
uh, gets to happen according to those local cultural norms. And it's not just males reinforcing and creating these rules. Every member of the group is creating and reinforcing those rules. And it seems to be pretty ubiquitous in human culture. So that's what I call sexism, which is for me, which is a flip side of the exact same coin that gynecology comes from. Fundamentally, at least in the deep, deep past, it helped more birthing bodies survive. It helped more babies survive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It helped that community in one way or another survive and thrive over generations. So it's not that I'm saying there are perks to sexism. That's like too broad a stroke. It's more like the conditions in which this urge to create sex rules and then abide by them and reinforce them may have initially arisen in deep, deep time in human culture probably has to do with reproduction more than simple male dominance. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Can we talk about the evidence for early matriarchy among homo sapiens? We can. The best evidence for possible matriarchies somewhere in our, if not human, our hominin past mm. is probably actually the midwifery itself. Mm. <laughs> and here's what I mean by that. It's not simply that any of your listeners who have given birth understand what an incredibly vulnerable moment it is yeah. to have your feet up in stirrups. For a long time, we had no stirrups. But, you know, that somebody's down there while you're doing the thing and in incredible pain. It's not just yeah. that you had to trust that person, however desperate you are. Mm. Um, it's also that if you look at contemporary, well-studied chimp societies in the wild who are not matriarchal, okay, they're, they're patriarchal. It's actually not the case, not simply that they don't help each other give birth, but they don't even give birth near the troop. They do this yeah. thing where they take a maternity leave. Sounds cute to us and like something in the U.S. we wish we're better paid for. But actually <laughs> yeah. what they do, these pregnant chimps that are about to go into labor, they leave, they don't leave the, ch the territory entirely, which would be dangerous, but they go to the periphery. They go away from the main troop and they build their nightly nest so Somewhere else, okay? And then when they give birth, they're suppressing their pain vocalizations, which is to say they're doing this secretly. They are giving birth in a way that they don't want others around when this happens. Once they've given birth, they reintroduce themselves and their newborn to the troop very carefully, these females. They go to their best allies first, and then if they're friends with the alpha female, they'll definitely introduce to the alpha female, but they're going to put that one off hella last. And the central reason they do that is because infanticide, especially of mm, newborns, yeah. is rampant in chimp society, including female on female infanticide, which is to say, uh, if the alpha female is not your friend and you bring mm. your newborn into the troop, 
It's not just that she's going to try and take the kid and kill it. She's then going to eat it in front of you while you scream. It's insane. Okay? It's I, been documented. I, I, had to, I had to read that twice. That I was like, you've got to be yeah, kidding me. I'm not trying to be dramatic. Yeah. It's just chimps, man. You know, and it's not yeah. like it's happening every day. And of course, this is part of the assumed reason for the maternity leave, among others, right? Um, yeah. It's that yeah. it's actually not safe to be a postpartum female with a newborn in chimp society because their female bonds are actually pretty weak. Now, just across a big river, actually, in Africa, yeah. mm -hmm. there are these groups of bonobos who are also chimp-like creatures. We are equally genetically related to them. Yes. And they our, are our, matriarchal. Our hippie, our hippie primate ancestors, as you like to call hippie them. Hippie yeah. is, uh, you know, that's a little bit 60s, 70s. You know, there are sexy cousins, partially because they have a lot of sex um, and not just because they're like the free love people. Actually, the reason they have a lot of sex is that they have just as much conflict as the chimps. It's just that instead of resolving that conflict with violence and aggression, they solve that conflict with uh, genital rubbing. But the big thing that's interesting to me about the bonobos is not simply that they're matriarchal, but that they have these tight female bonds. Like mm, almost yeah. nothing, like we talk about sisterhood, you know, in the modern context here in the West, we have nothing on the bonobos. Those chicks are very deeply primate level bonded in that matriarchy. And there's good and bad of that, okay? The good of it is that nobody abuses the kids. There's just not really yep. a lot of infanticide going on. You you step up on a kid and these tightly bonded females will definitely attack you. But it's not the case. So I've often had my signing lines, you know, where people come up to the author, I sign the book. Yeah, I've sure. had really big signing lines, which is awesome for a first-time author. But I get a lot of people saying, yeah, down with the patriarchy. We should all have a matriarchy. And I'm always, I want to support them because clearly they're my fans. But I'm also kind of like, did you read that bit about primate matriarchies, though? <laughs> because the thing is, and I'll give you this story because I, it really drives home the point to me. So this one guy, this one bonobo guy was acting up. Yeah, and this was being observed by some primatologists at a distance. He was he was getting, I, don't, I can't remember if he was getting handsy with an infant or he was just being too sexually aggressive with a female. I don't know what he did wrong, but a whole gang of tightly bonded females in this matriarchy ganged up and attacked him. And they chased him out of the territory actually quite violently, which isn't what bonobos usually mm. do. The primatologist found him a couple days later. He did manage to keep his penis. They weren't sure if that would happen, but he had lost a toe. Please remember that bonobos do not have weapons. They either tore it or bit it off, okay? Wow. I have a son, and he can be a real jerk, okay? He's five, right? And all five-year-olds are kind of jerks. I love him, and he's lovely, but you know. Like, I don't want somebody to maybe take off his penis and or toe just because he acted up a bit, right? So I'm a little bit American, a little bit egalitarian. I kind of think we can do better than primate matriarchies, actually. I think I think the human future is is much better with a more even distribution of power. Interesting. And so when you think about the the move from a more common matriarchal structure to mm -hmm. the more common patriarchal societal structure that we see today, mm. you don't see that as um, as as a mistake or a or a negative evolution. Hmm. I see it as an inherently dangerous evolution. So chimps supposedly, and this is controversial, but supposedly have a lot of sex with everybody, not simply because it's fun times for the chimps, but because of so-called paternal uncertainty. That yeah. because of yeah. rampant infanticide, 
it's best to confuse the males as to whose is his by just having a lot of sex with a lot of the guys. Right, and, right. you know, therefore, maybe they'll be less likely to kill the kid. I mean, it doesn't sound fun being a female chimp, right? But this is this was a very dominant argument for a long time in primatology for why that promiscuous behavior had evolved. So if we shift from something like that, a paternal uncertainty model, to something like monogamy, especially in a patriarchal monogamy, where males become dominant and everyone knows who the sons are, well, that's actually pretty well terrible for the females uh, in that light. Not only because their kids could receive so much more threat, but then they would become that much more dependent on male favor for their children's survival, right? Mm -hmm. so, so those are the arguments that I make. It doesn't sound great, at least thinking about chimps, for us to have shifted to paternal certainty and patriarchy. That seems to me what I call a devil's bargain. Maybe there were some advantages initially, yeah. but it's not yeah. nearly yeah. as good as we seem to think. And I understand, Kat, that there's some correlation between paternal certainty and the size of testicles. And, <laughs> and so the size of Homo sapien testicles would give us some indication of the kind of societies we came from, as I understand it. The balls. Turns out strongly associated with male-male competition and your general mating strategy. Yeah. So gorillas have many females uh, and uh, and one dominant male. There's a lot of sneaky sex. There's a lot of like, he actually isn't fathering all of them, like a lot of these societies. But mm -hmm. nonetheless, mm -hmm. nonetheless, his balls are like peanuts, just like tiny little, just like not a lot going on there, man. <laughs> you know, uh, his penis isn't that large either. The rest of him is huge because he actually has to compete with other males for dominance, uh, right. mostly in a flashy right. way, beating the chest preferred to actual violence, right? Um, so he's building out a big body plan, but he doesn't really have to invest in sperm, which is to say, remember that balls are where you make the sperm, okay? And investing in testes tissue, how much of that you have, how much sperm you need to make, is in many ways a kind of economics. It's a metabolic problem. It's like, how much do you want to invest in running these things? And how much does your behavior, you know, require it? So when you don't have as much sperm competition, you don't need to have big balls. The mm. chimps, meanwhile, yeah have gigantic balls. Just like, how do you even stand up with those things, guys? Just like swinging back there. Like, it's just a lot. It's just a lot, okay? <laughs> for an animal that size, okay? Yeah. And the reason for that is that any given female is having sex with quite a few males, more than likely, or at least that's the condition in which such balls evolved, which means that he needs to blitzkrieg the cervix with his actual semen in order to succeed, or at least that's the theory, yeah? And so, so he has very, very large balls. And human testicles, meanwhile, kind of Goldilocks, kind of in the middle, not too big, not too small, which is to say it doesn't really speak to either sexual model as the major way that those testicles uh, initially evolved to be such a size. That maybe we were a mixture of a number of different mating strategies, or maybe this is indicative at least of a reduction in male-male competition from something like a chimp, maybe a move towards occasionally even monogamy. Interesting. Yeah. So it, it it suggests that we're that we're perhaps in, in the middle of the road. One piece of evidence that I find fascinating. I, I was looking this up before before we started speaking. Was I was interested to look at the anthropological record and look at among the you know more than a thousand hunter gatherer societies that we've encountered in the last few hundred years. Mm -hmm. How many of those societies were thought to be um, patrilineal versus matrilineal mm -hmm. versus bilateral, meaning mm -hmm. they acknowledge descent through both parents? 
Mm -hmm. And I found a 2019 research paper from Vanderbilt out of over 1,100 hunter-gatherer societies, 590 were traditionally patrilineal, 362 were bilateral, descent Mm -hmm. from both parents, and another 160 were recognized as matrilineal. So Mm -hmm. it's still like, you know, a good 15% of... Mm Uh, hunter-gatherer societies that have been discovered in the last few hundred years, extant, as you would say. Um, Mm -hmm. So to me, what's kind of cool about that is that it would suggest that when we think about this combination of our biological evolution Mm -hmm. and our cultural evolution and our, Mm -hmm. our, our flexibility, our ability to you know, yeah. adapt to different social structures based upon the kind of mores and uh, uh, that we encounter, we would appear to be a species that's still relatively adaptable. Absolutely. And I think the best assumption to make is that we have always been adaptable. In fact, that's one of the most distinguishing features of our species and presumably the ancestors that we evolved from. Our flexibility is the point. Our behavioral adaptability is precisely what we're good at. And there are many known matrilineal and matriarchal societies. Um, There are Native American traditions. I talk about uh, Kerala in the book in southern India. And we don't know, and maybe we don't need to know how exactly to interpret that in relation to the commonality of it. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm, maybe actually mm -hmm. all of these different ways of going about being human and collaboratively trying to survive is fine, actually, and perfectly normal and valuable for its diversity. Because, of course, in all of evolution, uh, diversity is a feature, not a bug. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Well, turning to the modern experience that we have as humans, women and men, moving through the world today mm-hmm. and trying to understand the dynamics of courtship, of how the sexes interact. You reference that, like the history of humans trading meat for sex. Oh, yeah. And, you know, certainly there's a long history of a kind of exchange of, of, of sex for favors of various types. Mm-hmm. How, how do you think about this and, and, and how do you think, to what extent, is that still true today in terms of the, the way that we interact? Well, I mean, as you see in the last chapter, man, it's a, it's a contentious thing and a deeply personal thing for anybody with a female body to have to think about, certainly when faced with the offer of a job of prostitution as I was. I didn't take the job, but I was real close, man. I was real close to taking that job. I was broke. Um, I did not become an escort. But of course, for someone like me who has a brain like mine and a life like mine, I, I understand the freak that I am, my brain then goes to... 
how this is a very, very deep and old and weird and frankly annoying story that we tell about womanhood. Like, is the history of womanhood a history of prostitution? Yes, because we talk yes. about chimpanzees. It's more the chimpanzee that exchanges uh, treats for sex than, uh, than human beings. And that this is somehow the origin of sexual favors for exclusive sexual access. The dawn of monogamy, in other words, being tied to this kind of chimpy prostitution. And is that where what we think of as mom modern womanhood, uh, is that its origin? Is that where it comes from? I think it must always be true that you can't fully divorce. Divorce is an interesting word here. You can't fully separate mm -hmm. um, what we call a courtship and a mating strategy and how we go about choosing one another um, in our individual cultural contexts uh, from the idea of benefit. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's yeah. not that it, there is a consciously chosen thing. I don't think it's not so crude most of the time is what I mean. It's yeah. not so, yeah. um, we, we you know, can call it like marrying well. My, my mother was raised to marry well. She grew up yeah. in country clubs, you know, and is that a kind of prostitution? Women of my generation might say, um, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm right, not down with that. Right. Nope, nobody, sure. nope, nope, nope. You know, but for, for her generation, there's also a practicality and it is tied into romance and then all of our rom-coms and people from different classes. It's a mess is what I'm saying. And I, and I do think it's true that um, whether or not we're conscious of it, we build ideas of our future with another person whom we hopefully love, <laughs> whatever love is, you know, that has all kinds of color to it. And some of that color is the idea of how it is we are living with one another. And some of that is certainly the resources that we have available. I don't right. think it's the case that like the majority of us are, are choosing so crudely, you know, yeah, in a kind yeah. of social climbing kind of thing. I mean, all respect to people who have no choice but to make those decisions, okay? Yeah. Let's not be so privileged as to think that we should look down on them. Yeah. But I just don't think that that's, that's the dominant thing for most of us, even among the poorer people that I know. Usually it's just somehow woven in consciously and subconsciously into a broader picture of imagining a future with someone you adore, you know? Um, and I don't know how to pull those threads out, you know? It's a problem. It's a problem. I don't know how to tease it out. I think the history of feminism has been working on this for a while. You know, I'm not going to solve it here on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> now, now the you casually drop cat having been offered uh, a job as an escort. Oh yeah, uh, and having taken the, the offer seriously and turned it down, I, I think it's worth. I think I, I, I'm imagining a lot of listeners were um, their eyebrows went up. That was actually an extraordinary passage in the book, beautifully written and presented. Thank you. W would you mind telling us a little more about that? Because I think I think that's uh, it's fascinating, and 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 I have to think it somewhat informed some of your broader interest in these dynamics in our species. Well, I was either 20 or 21. I don't remember what month it was. So so that would be the what would determine one or another age. Um, and I was broke as hell, and I was not living on parents' money. Um, my parents and I were not uh, on – we spoke, but it's like somewhere between speaking terms and not speaking terms. And hmm. maybe I was rebelling. Maybe I wasn't. The point is, is I was broke, okay? And I needed a job, and I hadn't finished college. I started college early. And then dropped out when I turned 18 because I legally could do so and then eventually returned. Anyway, I was about a semester short is the point at, at 20 or 21. Well, yeah, like 20, I think. Um, 
and uh, I wanted a job. And I and I saw an ad for a girl working the phones, and I had been a telemarketer, you know, and I thought I'd just be like selling some coupons or something. And so I drive my broken car <laughs> to this like nondescript uh, like park, you know, like business park, you know, just outside of town where a lot of telemarketing places are. And I think for, you know, a good 10 minutes of the interview, I think that that's what I'm applying for because there are cubicles and there are headsets and there's like some Ikea shit. And it's just, you know, nothing is out of the ordinary visually to what I'm seeing. But about 10 minutes in, I realize who I'm talking to is a madam and I would be applying for a job to work the phones. And it was a good rate. It was a good rate. Like I wanted to work for the pharmaceutical company, but they only took college graduates and I was a semester shy. And I thought, well, maybe I could do this job. I don't know. But then as I'm about to leave, the madam looks at me and says, you know, I think you'd be great on the phones, but I think you could be one of our girls. And and she told me that it was going to be $200 an hour. And man, back then, back then, that was... That was bank, okay? And and I, you know, was like borrowing to make rent and there was mm -hmm. a drug dealer down the hall from where I was living and I was, you know, I was obviously very privileged, obviously very white, all of the things. You know, the way I would arrive at the question of sex work is different from how a lot of people do. Mm, sure. I was not being trafficked. I was not, you know, yeah. I was, yeah. I, I had the occasion and privilege of a choice is yeah. what I'm saying, you know. But once you're presented with the choice and you're broke, you can't go back to not having had that question. Mm, you can't yeah. go back to understanding that the most fiscally rewarding thing you can do at this moment in your life is put your vagina up for temporary rental. You know mm, what I mean? You can't yeah. you can't go back to understanding that like you could take a job or until it's presented to you. So I did. I, I I took it seriously. I thought about it. I was like, well, shit, you know, am I okay with it? There are ways in which it's dangerous. I guess I would be more elite because escort, but you know, they always tell you elite things and then you end up with, right? You know, yeah. I, maybe I was foolish. Maybe I wasn't, but I, I, I took the job idea seriously because I yeah. thought of it as temporary. Yeah. I thought of it as a thing just until I finished my last semester and off I went, you know, but like... And so I talked to my boyfriend at the time because I had one. Mm. I haven't been single a lot in my life. That's true of a lot of women, you yeah. know. And um, and he, uh, bless his heart, said, well, if you take the job, I'm breaking up with you. Mm. Now, he did not offer to help me with rent. He did not offer Bastard. a place to yeah. stay. Um, and, you know, not that he necessarily should have been obliged to, but he did make it clear where his line was that I shouldn't yeah. take the job. And, you know, I really do wish, like I say in the book, I wish I'd had some freaking feminist revelation, you know, like bell hooks descending in a halo and robe right. to tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah. But it was not the case. No, right. I turned down the job because I was in love with this guy. And, and mm. just the thought of, of having to break up with him was the reason I didn't do it. It's amazing, though, that you tell the story in the book and here, and now I think with even a few more details, uh, so honestly, because you didn't need to. But it does speak to this larger dynamic of, as you say, realizing like far and away the most valuable thing that apparently that I have that people are willing to pay me for is the rental of my vagina, as you put it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it's and I, of course I think the sort of like the the simple explanation of how we got here, the evolutionary explanation, is like it's you know 
having sex for women is potentially very costly because it results potentially yeah. in nine months of pregnancy and you know yeah, yeah, another yeah. 15 years of rearing child rearing whereas for a man it's it's historically not been costly and and it's been in the interest of the male to have sex with as many people as possible and and, and so that resulted in a set of behaviors and a set of drives that are asymmetrical and that asymmetry i think is often very disconcerting to, mm -hmm. I mean, has resulted in a lot of sexism, as uh, mm -hmm. as you say, a lot mm -hmm. of a lot of uh, challenges uh, for young women and women of all ages, and that asymmetry. I also find having having had a very different experience <laughs> as a young teenager, as a male, it's sort of disempowering in, in a different way, right? <laughs> Which is that as as a young male, you have this experience of thinking like, oh my gosh, all of a sudden, my body's telling me that. All I want to do is this thing. And mm. meanwhile, no one has any interest in me at all. And even the thoughts I'm having are offensive and criminal. You know, mm. and, you know, it's a mm -hmm. totally different set of problems and, and maybe, mm -hmm. maybe a lesser set of problems. But I was really struck by hearing you describe how every woman that you've talked to, every woman with whom you've, you've, you've brought this up, you, when you've asked the question, do you remember the first time when you were a young teenager and for the first time, you noticed men looking at you on the street or, 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 or mm -hmm, all of a sudden mm -hmm. that men wanted something from you mm -hmm. that very consistently women would say, oh, my gosh, yes. I mean, that, that, that's mm -hmm. a very specific moment in the growing up experience of, of women. It really, really is. I mean, it often happens before puberty for a lot of us, which is, uh, let's call it a complicated thing. Um, but simply noticing when men or boys looked at you differently, that there is something about your body that made you be not simply seen, but to become a thing that is seen and valued for being seen in such a way. And that you're that simply existing in the world with such a body is precisely... Um, the thing about you that shapes how you are seen and that you would be more seen than others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And on the flip side, and it's often tied to sexual desire, but not only. And on the flip side, then you hear a lot of uh, postmenopausal women talking about the weird relief yeah, many yeah. of them feel at not feeling like they are in that um, gaze in that mm, same way. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's some frustration and a devaluing and an annoyance at feeling invisible, but also a relief. Um, sure. Now, the male gaze means way too many things nowadays as a term, so it's like I try not to use it. But that feeling of being seen in such a way is fundamental. Yeah. I do want to just quickly, though, loop back um, to something you had said earlier, because it is absolutely true that male bodies are uh, prostituted and that male bodies are trafficked. The ratio is strongly skewed, but I'm not interested in comparing pain. My observation from my own journey is just that the it seems to me to be a very challenging thing to be a young teenager of any gender today. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's just a really <laughs> it's a really hard time to be a teenager. And um, often a very horny time. I would just offer right. quickly that every chick I knew from eighth grade forward and often earlier, but eighth grade especially was a time was like really horny. It's just that maybe there was that sex bias thing, that gender bias thing of feeling pursued. More like that. Right, 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 yeah, yeah. right. So it's an incredibly complicated experience to be a young female dealing yeah. with all those dynamics. The combination of sexual desire and shaming 
and, uh, and, and, and predatory men of all ages. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's got to be a very difficult journey. And then I think there's this very different journey for a lot of young teenage boys, which is feeling, again, this in- incredible sense of, of, of sexual desire and yeah. feeling like nobody wants to objectify you at all. Yeah. <laughs> right? Does, like, like, does like nobody want me? <laughs> yeah, right. that I mean, thing. like you're, you're just sort like of shame filled and horrible. And it's yeah. a different kind of shame, but it's the sense. Yeah. And, but, but I think the experience for a lot of young teenage boys is mm. if the only way that I will ever maybe in a decade find a woman who finds me desirable is if I play the guitar until my fingers bleed or watch so many sitcoms that I can figure out how to be funny or develop some skills so I can make some money. You know, I mean that Yeah, 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 of course. And and in in some respects that can end up being a a a useful process for young men to feel like I've got to work really hard to develop some skills because in this (laughs) asymmetrical dynamic between men and women, um, if there is um, if I have to bring more to the table than my body to be sexually attractive to to mates, I, I'm going to have to develop those other things. Whether it's yeah. I, I, I'm going to have to make money, I'm going to have to be talented in, in in this way or that way. But it's it's I, I think often just that asymmetry of desire or uh, of of sexual dynamics is both deeply interesting and deeply challenging for, for both sides to, to a large degree. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, of course, of course. One of the things that's been really, I think beautiful is the right word, that I think has been really beautiful about the process of uh, putting this book out into the world. You know, it's written and I'm out and I'm on tour and I'm doing the signing lines and the Q&As and all of that, is how many men are in the audience and how many men are in the signing lines. And I, at first I was like, oh, well, it's because science, you know, guys are more, you know, maybe guys are the science readers or whatever, but no, no, no. A lot of guys want to talk to me about their bodies, man. A lot of guys want, especially aging men, actually. And you would think that that's an aggressive mood or some weird dominance thing, but no, no, no. It's a vulnerability. But because of toxic masculinity bullshit, like they don't feel safe talking to a lot of people about it. But like maybe this chick who wrote this book, you know, I don't know. I don't want to project onto them. I just think that there's this thing once you open that taboo door around talking about the body in any given context, even a book like this that that so many people want to and need to in any gender identity you know what i mean mm-hmm, that um mm-hmm. that this allow gives us permission to speak which yes, is um, yes. really an honor to be able to do well and and as you say biology can be a liberating space yeah for people of all genders and there's a sense that understanding our biological history and evolution helps us understand why it's as complex as, as it is and how we got here and and really there's there, there's uh it, it's hard not to feel a lot of empathy for everyone at every yeah. step <laughs> at every step of the journey yeah. um, which takes me to a, a, a really a final question which is what kind of social structures we want to live in do you see examples in history or in your imagination of the kind of social structures that, and, and dynamics that we'd like to inhabit? I think whenever we try to imagine a future, we have the urge to look to a model from the past. But I think it's also true that the way that we live now is globalized as we are now. We may not have a very good model for how best to build a uh, 
a collaboration of many different human cultures that will equally support everyone, you know? I, that sounds like a dodge, but what I mean by it is, is um, obviously I'm American. Obviously, I'm pretty into this democracy thing. Uh, I'm pretty into institutions in yeah. general, actually, as I say in the book. I think uh, our fragile extended social bonds are best supported with robust institutions that we build to reinforce uh, our, our better instincts and, and help suppress some of our more competitive side. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like in 300 years. The climate is changing. I think it is better for us not to assume that the way we do things now is going to necessarily be best in such a future. I, I do and nevertheless hope um, that the central goal of supporting diversity and the central goal of reducing suffering uh, remain central tenets in whatever the hell we build going forward. How about that? That makes a lot of sense to me, and 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 you point out that that uh, that societies in which women are empowered have always been better societies for everyone, right? And, Historically, and that's, that is true. Yeah, maybe you were fishing for me to say that. I gave you a big, broad, <laughs> no. space-based answer. Yeah, but, no, uh, no, no, yeah. no, no, it's absolutely true that historically, sex egalitarianism is often associated with many of our ideals for human success. Well, Kat Bohannon, thank you so much uh, for taking time out of your day to be with us today. Uh, such a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Lovely to meet you. And it was fun. You can support The Next Big Idea by becoming a Next Big Idea Club member. Sign up today and you'll get ad-free versions of this show, bonus conversations with our curators, Adam Grant, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, and Daniel Pink, invitations to our live events, and every quarter we'll send our favorite new books right to your doorstep. Learn more at nextbigideaclub.com and use the code podcast to get 20% off. Our show this week was produced, as always, by Caleb Bissinger, sound designed by Mike Toda. We simply could not make this show week in and week out without the marvelous team at the LinkedIn Podcast Network. Mike, Ryan, Kamen, Jesse, and everyone else, thank you. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week. 